Alright guys, I am back. This is, well I'm going to call this a ride along, but I'm actually sitting at home in my little office. But uh, I'm going to just say ride along for, because that's what I've been naming my episodes and probably the most convenient time for me to record and most of them will probably be in the car. But, again, this is, well this one is a little bit, it's all like the overall topic all involves Israel-Palestine, but it's going to expand in different ways. So I'm going to be talking about kind of like the geopolitical position of the United States over the last few years. And um, I think I'll probably touch on the Candace Owens and Ben Shapiro because I think that's, I mean, a lot of people like the drama of it, but I think it kind of shows the state of the American right. And there's might be, we can dive in deeper into that. And if I don't go too long, I might dive into uh, what seemed to be a lot of people on TikTok that were fascinated with Osama Bin Laden's letter to America. But I don't know if I'll have time for that. So if not, uh, I'll probably cover it, maybe with Luke, when we record tomorrow. But I wanted to get an episode out uh, today. So... Here we go. So, you know, on the world stage, like where America is, I think is changing pretty rapidly. And if we just go back, I'll kind of do a quick overview. But after the fall of the Soviet Union, America was on top. They could pretty much do almost any foreign policy they wanted, barring any domestic pushback, but mostly they were able to intervene in almost all, like, in South America, Central America, the Middle East, Africa, and even um, push into Eastern Europe. And so we were the global, we were the top dogs. You know, they called it the unipolar moment. We are the baddest motherfuckers on the planet, and pretty much no one can resist our pressure. Um, and even if they wanted to, now it's not saying that we could have like took over China or Russia, but as we were expanding closer and closer to China and Russia, they couldn't really do anything. They were not in a position to really do anything to push back. Um, so. You know, we're on top of the world. In the 90s, we start pushing into, uh, you know, having backing terrorists in the Middle East. We're bombing Iraq. We're putting bases in the Middle East. Um, we are backing terrorists in Eastern Europe. And we're starting to apply pressure in places across the world uh, through soft and hard power, economic sanctions. Um, and then we roll up into the 2000s and we get a backlash from the Muslim world, right? We get 9-11. That's how the 20th century started for, or 21st century started for America. And when that happened, it basically, we got the green light to completely expand into the Middle East. While also pushing NATO to the east, 
and uh, and really really moving into wait moving uh, expanding NATO to the and the European East and moving uh, basically completely invading and taking over as much as the Middle East as possible. Now we actually pretty much dominate most of the Middle East either through our actual military has stormed in to, and overthrew. Uh, governments, our military is bases in a bunch of nations in the Middle East. Um, our uh, we also prop up a bunch of like puppets in certain regimes. We back dictators, so they basically um, almost either they do it. Uh, uh, they do as they're told through the threat of violence, or we pay them off. You know, this is how the Abraham Accords came along. Um, uh, the Abraham Accords basically is these like five nations that did not want to make a, on paper a peace agreement with Israel. And America basically paid them off and said, we'll pay you as much money, you look away from the Palestinians, and we will, um, you sign an on official agreement with the state of Israel. Now, things were, when Donald Trump came into the picture, he did come in with this like, you know, kind of anti-war message. And I think more or less his, his, he, his perspective was, I think he was, you know, his gut reaction was more anti-war, but I think it was more like, what do we get out of and when he doesn't see like the American people or America as a country getting a lot out of something, he's against it. You know, maybe you can make the argument that, you know, why do we have troops here or there? And then he would just outright say, like, I'm pretty sure he said that, like, well, we're guarding the oil fields in Syria. So that's what we're getting out of it. You know, at least he would tell us, like, what we're getting out of it out loud. And at least there was, like, a much more of a reason to be there instead of it's just being like this catch-all phrase like well we got to protect our interests we got to fight terrorism like at least he was telling us what the goal was and he didn't necessarily expand any wars and you know he actually before he left office he made and he his big thing i would say would be the abraham accords and also making a deal with the Taliban to withdraw from Afghanistan. Now, unfortunately, he made this deal at the very end of his term. I mean, I think he even made this deal, like, after he lost the election. And it was originally scheduled for May. And then Biden came in, and I think he wanted more of, a, like, a ceremonial remembrance of all this, and he pushed it. And maybe he didn't want Trump's name on the deal, so he pushed it to November or September 11th for 2021. <clears throat> and like almost mark like our 20 year embark here in Afghanistan, right? And well, before that happened, the by August, the Taliban pushed said they're not waiting any longer, they can't wait, they're probably wanting not to wait until the winter season, so they're gonna push while it's still the summer, 
and push and try to take over what they can. And this forced the American military to either retaliate and push and like, you know, make an aggressive stance. But if we're leaving a month later, it's like, okay, let's just get, get out of here now. And, you know, the whole thing about all this money we spent on the Afghan army, that we're going to prop them up, and they're going to... This was like one of the biggest militaries in the world, this Afghan army, that was completely propped up by the United States military. And a group of, like, Talheads and Toyotas, like, just completely collapsed the entire thing. And it was a mostly nonviolent takeover by the Taliban. Now, of course, there were some people that died, but mostly the Afghan army just laid down their arms, and surrendered or ran away. And I think this was a pivotal moment. And because I think it's just, it shows that, it showed the world that what America embarked on was an impossible task. And it showed that the la we spent the last 20 years trying to create this fertile ground for a liberal democracy and it's with its own standing army, a whole nation that's going to be our ally right there. And it just completely collapsed. Completely collapsed. And it was a terrible withdrawal. It did not look good publicly for Joe Biden at all. And then, so I think this was like a first sign that America is not as powerful as they say they are. Now, while this has been going on, there's a whole issue that was going on in Eastern Europe. America was pushing NATO closer and closer to Russia's border, and they were trying to implement Ukraine into NATO. And, you know, in 2014, basically the eastern side of or the western side of Ukraine declared war on the eastern side. And they've been basically been at war with each other up until, um, I mean, they're still at war with each other now, but it was just a brutal war that was happening in civil war happening in Ukraine. And as, you know, I think with Biden's connections into Ukraine, and them just openly saying that they're gonna put NATO in Ukraine or Ukraine in NATO, and them not willing to put on paper that Ukraine will not join NATO. And this was just too much. You know, there was too much pressure on Putin to not retaliate that he invaded. And this was in February of 2022. And this was another pivotal moment, because no one really knew what was going to happen. Because they completely sanctioned Russia to an extent that they, a country might have never been sanctioned this much before. And then this is a modern regional superpower, right? They're not the global superpower like the US, but they are a regional superpower. And, you know, Russia invaded and started and got involved in the civil war in Ukraine and chose and then were on the western side. And this is when you saw the entire west, the, almost all of NATO, with the exception of Turkey, which is important, was backing Ukraine 
in this. They are flooding money and weapons in there, sending military advisors, everything they can. Sanctions, all of it. All of it. And <clears throat> fast forward, and there's plenty of off-ramps. They could have part, or they could have made a peace agreement and the entire time the Western NATO, the United States, was completely relentless in this. And so, what happened? Well, basically, the war is coming to an end. We're dragging it out, either for, probably for PR reasons, I'm not sure. Um, but they're still dragging it out. Russia has annexed multiple territories of the Western Ukraine into Russia at this point. Um, there was uh, the counteroffensive that they kept talking about in Ukraine has been the, uh, completely failed. There was almost no territorial gains at all, maybe little minor ones here and there. And things are so bad now that they're drafting people like in their 60s. They're drafting women. They're drafting even younger men as in like 15, 16. And they just can't, they just can't keep going. And by the end of it, the Russian military is actually a lot bigger and stronger and knows what they're capable of now. They know they can take on a full uh, military backed by the entire Western world. They took on a military backed by the entire Western world. So you're kind of seeing where the America wants to apply pressure that these other countries are starting to realize that maybe America is not as big and powerful and influential as you might think they are. And it's just showing the rest of the world that resistance to the United States is possible. And I think that's very important. That's very important. Showing that we are not in a unipolar world anymore. America cannot just dominate, ignore other countries' security grievances. They have to come to a negotiating table and make a good, good faith deal with countries. If not, they can slowly push back against the United States. Now, what also occurred from the Russia-Ukraine is China and Russia are now closer together. And this BRICS agreement, which has been going on for, I think, since like 2010, 2011. But there's only like five nations in it. It was Brazil, Russia, India, China. And there was one more country I can't remember. But in the summer of 2023, this summer, they came to a vote and they're now... They only had five nations, but now they all voted, and by 2024, there's going to be six more nations that is going to be in BRICS. And I think this is a sign of, like, because the United States uses economic power to... Uh, influence or force other countries into like doing the bidding or getting in line what the empire american empire wants now they're opening up their door to another economic system so if 
they're pushed out of our system, like Russia was, they have another one they can fall back on. You know? Like, it started with Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. And then, by 2023, they voted, and now they're going to have Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, and Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. Which is interesting, because... Like, a lot of these countries that are on here are both our enemies, like Iran, Russia, China, and some of them are like our allies, like Egypt and Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates. Egypt and United Arab Emirates are in the Abraham Accords. They made a peace deal with Israel, on paper at least. So you're watching, like, even countries that are supposedly our ally are maybe, you know starting to join into other, another economic system. So it's almost like an insurance plan for them. So they can, you know, if, if it ever comes to where their interests do not align with the um, Americans, with NATO, then they can, you know, okay, we're gonna step back and just go with this other one. Now, I don't exactly know I, all the details of BRICS of how efficient it is or anything like that, but I think you're starting to see this decoupling from the American hegemony as much as possible, at least setting the groundwork for it. And then this leads, so Brick, this BRICS vote happened in August. And then a couple months later, you have, you know, this Israel-Palestine conflict really kick off. Now, it's always been going but it's been kind of dormant in the background. And this is where you really see a turn, I would say. Because when Russia invaded, most of the world were happy to condemn Russia. And, I mean, a lot of Africa abstained. They weren't really, like, voting against them. But it was mostly the most Western nations, right? And... Even there were spurts of Muslim nations that were against Russia as invasion, right? Um, I don't even think anyone, a lot of countries voted that they were for it. Even China, I think, abstained and were kind of neutral in the situation. But, what, but now with this Israel one, and you see the UN votes, it's like the entire Eastern world. The almost all of South Africa, almost all of Africa, or South America and Africa, all of the Muslim nations, uh, all of Europe abstain. They didn't want to be part of the vote. So you only see like America, Israel, and a few other smaller nations that were aligned with America and Israel on this issue. And this, you know, when when you, when you deemed, when we deemed Russia as like the world's enemy, right? When they were the most hated nation, they invaded. It opens up the door for other countries that are under the scope of uh, um, the American empire to build alliances with these nations, or at least not like completely reject them and call them evil, evil Hitler or whatever. And so now with this Israel-Palestine, you have many more nations that are against this, calling it out, 
you have the entire Muslim world, our allies and our enemies, against this, and it's driving bridges to diplomacy between the nations that were the factions and nations that are at war in um, these countries. You know, they, you know, like Saudi Arabia was kind of like the Sunni led tribe in the Muslim world. And Iran was the Shiite Muslim leader of this tribe in the world, right? And now they're starting to negotiate. And, you know, Saudi Arabia's deals with the United States and its war on Yemen have really isolated them a lot of times from the Muslim world, too. And this is why earlier when I brought up Turkey, Turkey was one of the only few NATO countries that didn't completely reject Putin. They were a little bit more friendly, and because of that, America punished them by not giving them weapons like we do every other NATO, uh, weapon, NATO country. So then they made a weapons deal with Russia. So they stand as one of the very few, or as far as I know, the only NATO country that was against, um, or at least not completely against Russia and kind of putting resistance against the rest of NATO and the U.S. And now with this um, Israel-Palestine com conflict, it really starting to look like Turkey is ramping up its rhetoric against Israel. Now, I'm not sure if this is all talk. I'm not sure if Turkey will actually do anything, if they'll actually get involved. But it is something to really look at because he is, I mean, he has that is protest for Palestine. He's saying that Hamas is not a terrorist group. They are freedom fighters. And he is suggested multiple times about sending Turkey's military to Gaza. And you just see millions of people at this protest cheering for this. Now, I, like I said, I don't know if this is all talk, if the president of Turkey is just taking advantage of a situation and garnering support from his base and acting like, you know, I'm on Palestine's side, but when push comes to shove, we're not getting involved. But it is laying the groundwork for if they do want to get involved, then at least a significant portion of Turkey's population would support this. And that is very, should be very concerning. Very concerning that they're trying to step away from NATO, it looks like. Or, and there's people, I see people online saying, like, why is Turkey even in NATO? And all this rhetoric against Turkey. You know, they were not really with us against Russia. They're not really with us, and they're actively speaking out aggressively against Israel. I mean, Turkey might be the one of the most critical Muslim countries about this Israel-Palestine conflict. Like, I, I think even more than Iran itself, which is surprise, was surprising. So, I think this, like, fracturing you're seeing is, like, it's just L after L the U.S. is taking. 
And there's no real way we're seeing that they're going to get like a, a win from this Ukraine thing. I think it's just going to slowly die down until they accept terms that they don't want, but then the war will be over. And I think, I think if if we're if they don't play this correctly, there seriously could be a situation like that in Israel-Palestine. But it's hard to tell what will happen because Israel does have a significant amount of influence over our government. A very, very significant influence. And it's hard to tell if America even has the strength to resist Israel. Or if, I don't know, if they have some sort of blackmail on a lot of politicians, they won't fund, they're afraid of losing their seat in office because we do know lobbying groups like APAC, they're going after Thomas Massey. So it's really hard to tell if like, like who's really in charge between Israel and the United States, but it does seem that Israel is getting what it wants and we're watching our politicians try to dance politically, trying to you know, like a lot of Democrats are speaking up outside their mouth. Um, I mean, Republicans are pretty much all for Israel. Um, so it's really hard to tell how this plays out. But on a broader level, geopolitically, I think you're starting to see the world turn against the United States. And it doesn't seem like the United States is even trying to budge or even open up to the idea that this is a multipolar world, not a unipolar world, and that we need to maybe digress with our rhetoric and what we can impose. So, I don't know. I think that's the current state of our geopolitics at the moment. It could change, but at the very moment it seems that the U.S. just can't force itself and its interest on other countries anymore. At least not like they used to. The Muslim world is very different from where they were 20, 30 years ago. Russia and China are very different from where they were 20, 30 years ago. And other nations are recognizing that. And alliances and economic deals and diplomacies being built around the U.S. And I don't know. It just seems like they're like America is slowly losing its influence in countries. And that's what's crazy too, is like the Israel-Palestine is it's not just that there's resistance from Muslim nations, it's like all over the world. I mean there's protest domestically in Europe, there's protest domestically in the United States, there's protest all around the world against this. And it's like majority of the world is against this. Even the countries involved pushing and supporting Israel are having backlash within their own nation because of this conflict. So I don't really know how that's going to play out. It just doesn't seem intelligent or strategically good that we're just embarking down this path of supporting Israel, isolating ourselves from all these other countries. It, it just, the longer this goes on, the more that we don't try to come to at least a ceasefire or some sort of negotiation, 
between Israel and Palestine, the more it's pinning people to different sides. And at the end of it, it could the alliances of who's on whose team could look very different from when it started. And that's just something to keep in mind, the broader geopolitical idea of it. Now, um, now I'll turn into more uh, domestically. And it's funny because you see, like, just broadly speaking for the left, um, you see a civil war happening there where a lot of the younger base of the left is staunchly pro-Israel. Uh, they they want a ceasefire, of course. They want Palestinians free. Then you have the establishment Democrat where they're all in, pretty much all in for Israel. But you're also, and you see little bits of this defection in the Democratic side with like Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, uh, AOC. Like, it's not that much of a resistance. It's a few members, but there's more of a base resistance in the Democratic side for this than there is in the Republican side. Now, on the Republican side, that's what I'm going to focus on. And first, I'll start with our politicians. Um, they're completely useless. Every single Republican is lockstep in line with this Israel rhetoric, and you're not seeing any resistance from this from any Republican politician, a candidate really. Um, the only candidate has some resistance is Vivek, and he's trying to play both sides on this issue where he's like, Israel has a right to defend themselves, they have a right to attack Hamas, but America should not be arming them and funding them. He's taking more of this America first. We have to take care of our country. And that that seems to be, and he seems to get a lot of support and criticism for taking that position. Um, all the other candidates are basically, they're in a competition to blow Israel as much as possible. I mean, Nikki Haley is all but getting on her knees on camera for Bibi. I mean, she is the worst. Um, DeSantis, who... He was, like, the only good thing about him right now is he attacks the cultural issues domestically, and he was good on COVID, which is not nothing, but when we're past that. You know, COVID's in the rearview mirror. And I'm not saying we should forget about it. I'm not saying that people should be punished. I'm not saying that. But for like, what I'm saying is like the zeitgeist of what the American political conversation, like there's new topics and, and complications that's happening. And DeSantis is not standing firm against them. Like his big moment was COVID. But now, you know, he was wishy-washy on Russia, Ukraine. He didn't really make a stance. And then now this Israel thing, he's basically just, he's not as extreme about, with this rhetoric with Nikki Haley, but he is pretty extreme with it. He's basically blowing Israel now too. And so with the candidates, the only one standing apart really seems to be Vivek. And then um, within the actual politicians, elected politicians, the only one is Thomas Massey. And 
and you're not seeing really any criticism from Republicans about what's going on in Israel-Palestine. The only thing you see is what Thomas Massey and Vivek's kind of position is we should not be supporting this with American taxpayer money. We should be caring about America. America first. This America first rhetoric. And, you know, at the beginning of this conflict, I was pretty, like, black-pilled. Like, I was, like, you know, watching a lot of Republicans be against this Ukraine thing, I was like, wow, I'm, they're really taking a turn. And then this Israel thing pops up. And, you know, I always kind of knew Israel had significant influence in American politics. And I thought, you know, it was always something I, I, I really knew. I knew that, you know, there was Zionist people within the American uh, establishment. and But a lot of this, like, when I became politically aware, was around the Trump era. And although there was things happening in Israel-Palestine, it wasn't a major, uh, like, thing going on. There wasn't, like, a major news headlines everywhere about it. So I didn't exactly pay attention to it too much. And I always knew that, you know, a lot of terrorist groups and Islamic groups, this is one of their grievances. So I did know it was kind of a big deal in the Muslim world. And I knew that Israel had a lot of influence in American politics. But I guess without actually like seeing it unfold with my eyes, I didn't realize how deep this was. And so when the conflict took off and when the Hamas attack on October 7th, it really opened my eyes to how much influence the Zionists have and Israel have over America. And it really opened my eyes to how much the Muslim world resist um, this. They, they resist Israel-Palestine. And, you know, shortly before this all took off, I listened to Modern Maid's podcast about this about like a year ago. I listened to it for the first time. And if you haven't listened to it, you should definitely check it out. It's a very good, uh, long, like, seven-part series, like, 30 hours long um, podcast about this issue. And it's really good. I think he really paints both sides and gives an understanding to both sides in this conflict. But I, when I walked away with it is basically that the Jews wanted their own state and they were desperate. And how Europe was treating them, they were so desperate, they were willing to kick the native people of Palestine off their land to create their own state. And that's essentially what they did. They brutalized the because of how they were treated in Europe, and they were pretty much pretty much open. Uh, with open arms in a lot of ways from the Ottoman Empire and the Arabs. Um, and then the Zionists took advantage of the Arabs' uh, kindness and willingness to work with them. And then that's when a conflict has brewed. And, they, and then when they had the upper hand, they took full advantage of Arabs and kicked them off their land and established Israeli state through force and... Uh, putting economic pressure on a lot of countries 
uh, for a human resolution to establish the Israeli state. Um, but you get way more in depth in that podcast and you should read it. And so it really opened my eyes and, you know, I was kind of blackpilled on the right for a little bit. But emotions are high. Emotions were at the highest point, like right after the attack. And almost, it seemed like almost everyone on the right was lockstep in like, we have to defend Israel, support Israel, give them an open blank check for whatever they need. Um, they have the right to do anything in their power they want against all human, human rights and just demolish Gaza all they want to get rid of this threat they have next door, right? Well, because of the rise of Trump in the Republican side, he really came in with this America first rhetoric, right? I mean, one of my favorite things about Donald Trump, because I remember it was a 2015 debate and it was, he got the ask the question about the Iraq war because he made a comment before that George Bush should have been impeached because he lied us into war. And when he was questioned about that on a Fox News debate, 2015 South Carolina, he didn't really hold back. I mean, he basically was asked about that and he said, he's like, look, do whatever you want. I don't care. But the fact is the Iraq war was a mistake and there was no weapons of mass destruction. They knew there wasn't any mass weapons of mass destruction and they did it anyways. They lied and they know they lied. And, and then Jeb Bush, who was running at the time, came back and said, I'm tired of Donald Trump attacking my family for political reasons and I'm proud of the security apparatus that my brother built to protect this country. And Trump came back and said, he said simply, he simply said the truth in this moment. And he said, the towers fell under your brother's reign. And that was crazy. Not only was he calling out George Bush's war, disastrous war in Iraq that we were completely lied into, he also said that George Bush didn't protect us. That 9-11 happened under his watch. So the security apparatus that he was, that he was in charge of failed to protect the American people. And that was a really big moment. And that's when I think the shift from this old neocon thinking to this more America first started. And he starts questioning NATO, all these wars, he's trying to withdraw troops. Um, he's trying to make peace and negotiations with Putin. Um, I mean, he at least said he would, and then, well, we saw what happened after that. But he was more of this, you know, negotiator. He was making peace with North Korea. I mean, this is the first president that ever went to North Korea. And, you know, this rhetoric of like America first, you know, we'll stop going to war unnecessarily and focus on things at home. Like his big thing was the border, immigration, which was a big deal to a lot of conservatives. And this movement has almost captured the Republican 
uh, atmosphere. Now, the Republican Party, not so much, but this support from the people, that is what's captured in the American right. And it was only inevitable that this neocon, Zionist-type thinking, I mean, they were clashing before. The neocon and Matt, America First and Republican was clashing. And America First came out top for Trump. No one wanted to hear about this neocon bullshit anymore. And so then, you know, Trump was trying to make peace with Israel. He did, like, the Middle East with the Abraham Accords. But then when a conflict has arose now, this line of thinking that it's America first seems to be is still the predominant thinking amongst Republicans. And this is when, I think this sort of uh, attack really, like this is when, you know, this the thinking was still going on. It's just emotions were high. No one wanted to like say anything like, hey, I know Israel just got attacked, but like we need to focus on America. You know, we're kind of waiting for things to die down. But no one in the Republican side was really saying that. None of the prominent thinkers. Um, it was only like the like the what is deemed the far right, like Nick Fuentes, um, Lucas Gage. Um, there was just all these like guys that not really predominant in or the space that were outright saying they were against this, but the predominant, like, mainstream ones, like, you know, Charlie Kirk, uh, Glenn Beck, um, Daily Wire, Crowder, um, Bannon, Alex Jones, all of these ones were either supporting Israel or being a little bit quiet about this criticism. And... The only, and then a major one that was developing that I wasn't paying attention to was actually Candace Owens. And since this attack happened, um, you know, obviously there was a, 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 a dispute between Ben Shapiro and Candace Owens, if anyone doesn't know. But before this led, led up to that, the only thing I was seeing from Daily Wire, I wasn't paying attention to Candace Owens at all. I was just seeing Ben Shapiro basically freaking out being an over-emotional, like, calling people anti-Semitic, uh, you know, full-fledged support, like, level Gaza for Israel. I mean, he's a Zionist. He's, his loyalty is to Israel, not America. So he was just this over-emotional. And the only thing I had, and there was, like, Matt Walsh. And Matt Walsh wasn't really exactly critical. He was here and there. But mainly, he was criticizing, like, the left for protesting and... That, that, that's all I was seeing. There was either Israel, you're either full-fledged support for Israel, or you're criticizing all the protests that were happening here, you're blaming the left, and this, and then, wow, maybe immigration has been a failure, you know, all this rhetoric, there, but there is nothing critical of Israel, nothing at all. But I went back and actually looked at clips and what Candace Owen was saying, and she wasn't critical of Israel in any way, really. She was just pointing out obvious things. Like, for example, she said, she was saying, she was at, like, why, why is there this over-emotion for Israel? Like, it's a foreign country. And she was taking the position of, like, 
Just like Ukraine. She was very against sending money there. Like, why do we care about Ukraine? We need to focus on America. And she was pretty quiet about it. And then she made on her, she had a, she had a Jewish person on her show. And this guy was basically saying that, like, we have to be in support for the Jews. And, you know, all these people are pulling, like, these donors, the top Jewish donors for universities are pulling money out of universities because there's been resistance and maybe even, maybe even there is some sort of anti-Semitic talk from campus professors and students and protest. I don't really, I think that's exaggerated, but I'm sure the bits of it are true. And you see this overreaction now, you see like people saying that like, oh, find these students that are resisting Israel and do not hire them, right? Big Jewish people are saying this. And it's, and she just points out, she's like, why is it that this happens now for Israel when for the past eight years this has been happening against white people in America, on campus, in university? No one freaked out as much as they're doing now against Jews that they were for white people in universities, right? And she says that there's literally text in the like education that is demonizing white people. It's in the literature demonizing white people. And no one was saying anything about it. No one was this emotionally against and actually applying pressure on these universities until now. And there wasn't really an answer of why the Jews didn't freak out as much when white people were being demonized versus when now the Jews are, are being uh, protested against, like Israel, Israel, against Israel. Now we have to. You know, I just saw a clip of like Dave Rubin. And Dave Rubin's been I'm one of those guys that's all for Israel, criticizing the left constantly, no nuance at all, just constantly criticizing Israel. And he says on his, on his podcast, he says that if we have to unite against this, against the left, because they're going to go for the Jews first, and then they'll go after white people. And it's like, dude, how, how selfish are you? How naive, blatantly stupid are you? Like, white people have been demonized in universities, basically... Everything like white people. I mean, look, dude. People are who were the biggest protesters at Gen Six? It wasn't people from the ghetto. It wasn't people from the barrio. It was white people. And that protest that happened, and there was some sort, some violence that happened, but there was an over, over dramatic reaction to that from the from the federal government. And they threw, they raided people's houses that weren't even there. They've arrested and put January 6ers, mostly white people, in jail, in solitary confinement. And I'm sure, I'm sure Dave Rubin has probably called that out, but he wasn't as emotional about it as he is now. He wasn't freaking out about it as he is now. And it's just become very obvious that you know, when it comes to Jews, 
Jewish people get, and that makes sense. It's their tribe. I'm not saying that there's nothing wrong necessarily with the reaction. Like it's their people. They're reacting to their people. But don't expect a, other people, other groups to get over emotional when your group's being attacked. If you're not going to go to bat for our group, that's, that's insane thinking. And, you know, that's all Candace really was pointing out. She never even was critical of the IDF. And she's very smart, though, because I do think she was towing the line with her tweets, right? She did say that genocide is not okay for any country to do. Now, she did say this after a Republican politician basically said that, that the, the civilians of Gaza are not innocent. And then was one Republican that said, I don't remember his name, and that's when she tweeted, genocide is not okay no matter what nation. And I think she's smart. I don't think she's an idiot at all. She might have said, well, this was about this Republican politician, but she had to have known that that type of rhetoric that was being slung at the uh, Israel was going to affect, it was going to be perceived by people that, that, that this was calling out Israel. And, and I think that, you know, this cultivated that she, since she was like not like lockstep in to, I need to drink some coffee. Because she was not like full lockstep, like tripping over herself to support for Israel, like a lot of other conservatives were doing, then this cultivated into something. And so it all started with this Ben Shapiro, Candace Owens conflict. And I don't really care about the drama of it, but it really showed the dividing line in the Republican side. And that's why I think it's important. So before Candace, the tweet that I'm gonna, that caused the internet to explode, before I talk about that, I'm just gonna say that a video was posted where Ben Shapiro was at a private event, and I don't think he knew he was being recorded. It looked like he was at a private event and someone asked him what he thought, uh, what Ben thought of Candace Owens, um, what she has statements that she has said about this in, uh, Israel-Palestine conflict. And Candace Owens like was not really critical. It's, you know, it was really milk toast what she was saying. But she wasn't lockstep in line with Israel. And I think that's why when Ben said it, like, she's been, like, she basically, I, I can't remember the exact word, but he basically said, she doesn't know anything about this conflict. Her statements were despicable. Despicable is the word he used. And he basically is attacking her privately, which is kind of a bitch move. I mean, this is his employee. He's attacking her privately to a group of people. And he didn't know, I don't think he knew he was being recorded. And that video got posted online. And then, so, Candace Owens made a tweet shortly after that where she just quoted scripture from the Bible. Now, I think Candace Owens is really smart. I do not think that 
she tweeted this. I think she tweeted this as a jab at Ben Shapiro, but she laid it out so perfectly where you can interpret this anyway. And she's denied that this was directed at Ben, but this is what she said. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. No one can serve two masters. Either you hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And then she tweeted under it, Christ is king. And, and then after she tweeted that, she actually recorded the episode with Tucker Carlson, and Tucker Carlson actually asked her about it. But the day later, Ben Shapiro said that, like, Ben Shapiro is her boss. Like, he owns the Daily Wire. And Candace only worked the Daily Wire. And he said, Candace, if you feel that taking money from the Daily Wire somehow comes between you and God, by all means, quit. And that, you know, I think this is when, and then basically this is Ben Shapiro calling out his employee publicly, and then underneath it, Candace Owens says, you have been acting unprofessional and emotionally unhinged for weeks now, and we have all had to sit back and allow it and have all tried to exercise exceeding understanding for your raw emotion. But you cross the line when you come for scripture and read yourself into it. I will not tolerate it. Now, I don't know. I think that she set that up as bait. But whatever, doesn't really matter. But this really is something that's causing a divide. Where people were taking, in the conservative movement was taking Ben Shapiro's side, and people were taking Candace Owens' side. And I think that's important. Because I think there's a realization amongst the right that if you're not for Israel first, people will attack you. That, just like Thomas Massey, you know, he was America first, voted against the aid to Israel. And APAC is now slandering him. Slandering him. And it's very clear, and I think a lot of conservatives know this, that if you're critical of Israel... Your jobs at establishment uh, places will be in jeopardy. This is very well known if you're in if you're in conservative media. This is very very well known. I mean, this is kind of the history between Nick Fuentes and the Daily Wire back in 2017. You know, he was a little bit more critical of Israel, asking why why are we supporting Israel and all this, and the Daily Wire was cut him off, called him anti-Semitic. And he was pushed out of, you know, conservative mainstream media because of this. I mean, there's, and there's plenty of others that this happened to. Um, but in recently, you know, Charlie Kirk, who's been a big supporter of Israel, and like his, his group sends kids to Israel, and they came out and called him anti-Semitic just for asking the question of what happened, you know, there should be a thorough investigation of what happened on October 7th. It was a security failure. And it was like, whoa, you know? Conservatives are just asking questions. And they're not even, like, against Israel. 
It's just because you're not lockstep in complete support for every Israeli Zionist cause right now. They take that as a threat and they attack. And you're seeing this divide and it was, in, it was essentially inevitable. I mean, America first versus Zionists. When it comes to a conflict or a problem in Israel, all the neocons, all the Zionists, all the establishment politicians are all lockstep in with Israel. But the base, there's a split amongst the conservative base that's like, whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute. You know, we were all against Ukraine. We don't want to get involved there. Why should we treat Israel any different? You know, I think a lot of conservative types are sympathetic to Israel. I think, you know, after all the wars that we had in the Middle East, you know, they're not a big fan of these, the Muslim world. So they're really sympathetic to Israel. And they maybe they even agree that they should do what they want. But I think a lot of conservatives do not want America involved in this conflict. They don't want American troops involved in this conflict. They don't want American taxpayer money involved in this conflict. And it's a big generational difference. If you look at the boomer crowd, and you know you'll see a lot more support for israel but as you go down in age you see less and less support and this is true amongst um democrats and republicans if you look at age so i think this is a very important step and i was actually surprised and a little bit white-pilled by this because you know, I don't really care about the drama per se, but it really, really starting to see commentators on the right start questioning like this, this influence and the influence that Israel has. And, you know, right before this Israel conflict kicked off, you had banned the ADL trending on Twitter. This is a, you know, Jewish group that attacks people that's not lockstep in line with the woke stuff or with Israel. And, you know, they had banned the ADL training where even Ben Shapiro tweeted about this and, and condemned the ADL for this action. He readily admits on his podcast, I've seen it just recently, that there is a lot of lefty Jewish organizations that have been propping up this woke culture and attacking conservatives any way they can that is critical of it. And so... You know, there's this, you know, there's a lot of, there's just a lot of, uh, uh, what's the word? Um, hope, I guess. Hope I see in the conservative right. And I think the goal right now should be to decouple Israel from the American right as much as possible. You know, there's multiple reasons that we're seeing conflict, you're seeing like America first versus the Zionist neocons, and you're seeing like, even like kind of like Christians versus the Jews. There's kind of a major dispute in that arena too. And that's, I don't know, I think this is very important. Very, very important. Because Israel has significant influence over the United States. Significant influence. And watching the actual base of the Republican side um, actually, a, a civil war, a dispute over this topic is very important. And, and I think as this plays out, 
the more if the more Israel goes on with this war, and the more tensions increase in the Muslim world, the more tensions increase here at home in America, I think you're going to start to see more people critical of Israel and more America, obviously America first type Republicans are going to be more like we need to focus on America. The left is going to, the left is already pretty divided. And now you're kind of, it's not exactly the same, but you're kind of seeing that the base of the left and the base of the Republicans, not exactly in agreement, but closer to agreement. Like this is the, this is what it is, right? Like the left is like ceasefire, free Palestine. And the right is not necessarily like all pro-Israel, there's a dispute, but half the right is like America first, we should be involved here. And then another half is like get involved, support Israel. But that, that creates a problem for Israel, right? Like a lot of the base for the left is against this, the um, a right half of the right is against this but for different reasons. And then the a different section of the left is for Israel. So the base of the United States is not necessarily there. They, at the very least, they don't support supporting Israel. At the very least, that's an agreement they have. They don't want to support Israel. Both the left base and a lot of the right base can agree on that. They don't want to support Israel in this conflict. And this is very, very good developing. And I think a lot of people are starting. A lot of, like, you're seeing people recognize Jewish influence in American politics, right? And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I, I, I know, like, you know, a lot of, you know, we're more, we look at, we try to look at people on individual basis, right? That's this idea that everyone's an individual, you can't judge people by, by groups. And that's probably the better way of looking at things. But let's just for a moment look at things as in groups. And, you know, who's, like as a group, like European whites here in America have just been shit on and demonized for years now. You're seeing they're propping up uh, their pit or like black people, Mexican, other minorities are being pinned against each other. And, you know, I think there's a strategic reason for this. Like, I, I can't think of a good example, but okay, so and I, maybe a good example, maybe not exactly true, but in Iraq, uh, Saddam Hussein was a Sunni minority government in charge of a Shiite majority country. So there's two different factions, they believe in two different things, so their interests don't exactly align. Now I think in a lot of ways that type of system is happening here in America. Where you have all these Zionist, neocon, Jewish group that are minority, they're literally a minority, dominating over the every other group. A white majority, the black minority, the Me Mexican minority, Chinese minority. 
You know, they're dominating over all these groups and they basically dictate how things go. And that's always been the issue. The most banned, like, there's a reason why the most banned thing to talk about is, you know, any sort of different inter in interpretation of the Holocaust, any different interpretation of Hitler or anything that could be perceived as anti-Semitic is just off the, you are not allowed, completely, completely banned. I mean, Nick Fuentes is like a, like you consider him far right, right? He wants to institute, I think, like a Catholic monarchy in some sense, of some sort of authoritarian system. But then you also have like Ryan Dawson, who's a libertarian, a radical libertarian. I think he's just a minarchist. But, and these two both don't like each other. But what do they have in common? They both have different outcomes. They want different outcomes for society. They both want different things for America. But one is like a, a right-wing authoritarian, and the other one is a libertarian. But what do they have in common? They call out Israel's influence and Zionist inf influence in America. So that's why they get completely banned. Like, that's what they have in common. And Ryan Dawson and Nick Flintus don't even get along. These two people don't like each other. But Ryan Dawson's a libertarian. Nick Flintus is a right-wing authoritarian. The only thing they have in common is they are very critical of Israel, and they're completely, they were completely banned, debanked even. It's, it's crazy. But when that, it's not even to say that they're right about their criticisms of Jews or Israel or Zionists. It's just, it shows you who's actually in charge in this country. That's what it shows. Because if, if, the, if, we're, if, the, we, if, the, if it was reversed, if it was different, like say the Chinese were in charge of this country, right? We had the Chinese majority all throughout our politics. They had a Chinese political group that'll attack any politician. Um, they'll run candidates against them. They'll, they will, blackmail our politicians, they'll do anything they can to make sure that Chinese, the Chinese people have influence over American politics, right? And so if anyone starts talking about like Mao Zedong and what he did, like, hey, you guys like slaughtered your own people, if the Chinese were in charge, they would blackball that. If you started talking about that, you would be completely exiled from uh, the online discussion, right? They don't want you talking bad about the Chinese or, or their group because they're the ones in power. They don't want you to recognize that these Chinese people have a lot of influence in American politics and that their loyalty is not actually to America, that their loyalty is actually to China. And they're influencing American politics to do anything to, to, for the interest of China. And if you saw that happening, I mean, they're clearly a different, you know, group of people we, that you can look at them and be like, oh, that's not, you know, they're not the majority people here. You'd call that out. You'd be like, look, man, I'm not, you know, this is just natural for all human beings. Like, if, you know, if I'm in charge of something, I'm going to care more about small town Midwest people, then I'm going to care about people in California. That's just true. 
I would care more about Protestant Christians, because that's a lot of my family, more conservative types. I would want to advance their interest as much as I can, because those are my people. That's my family. It's all my family is from the Midwest. I would care about them the most. So it's not that crazy to imagine that a certain group of people have more influence in American politics that they might have, they just have more interest in their people. This is not crazy. This is how people think. Like they want to help their people, they want to lift up their people, they want to make sure their people are in charge. This is, it's not insane or crazy to just recognize that. You know, I do think, I'm not even sure, maybe I'm wrong, but there is an over, I think over dramatic uh, uh, criticism of Jews as a whole sometimes. And I don't think necessarily that it is all the Jews that are bad, I don't think that at all, but I to deny that Jewish people in America have significant more influence in this country than other groups would be, you're not in reality. You are not in reality. It's just obvious. It's just obvious. And, you know, like, Israel, I think Jews should have their own state. I don't necessarily, you know, I don't really know exactly how the Israel-Palestine conflict should be resolved. I, but I do think Israel could potentially have a state there. They just need to not act the way they are now, be open more to negotiations, and, and you know, obviously they should be able to defend themselves from another state invading, of course, I think. But they should not have this much influence over America. Because America should be focused on the American people. And that, that's, and I think, you know, we want this more libertarian, free world. Well, the first step is to stop getting this country to worry about other nations, enemy, our enemies, stop getting them to worry about our alliances with other nations. We need to get them to turn and focus on America. That's like the first step. The first step in the process is to step away from global affairs, because that seems where most of our attention goes to, and focus in on America, what we can do for America. And the biggest roadblock to that is this allegiance between Israel and America. That is the biggest roadblock. That is what's holding us back. Because I think a lot of our adventures in the Middle East have been at the behest of Israel or you know, neocon influence, which is like partially Jews, but also like uh, evangelical Christians. Um, they had a lot of influence when they took over. And it seems that now we will do anything and everything for Israel. If you're critical of Israel, you get banned. And I think it's just very obvious that this alliance is what's holding us back from turning and at least focusing at home. You know, let, once we stop embarking on all these foreign adventures, then let's fight to the death with each other here over what we should do next. And I think that is the better step. I think that's a better step. We might not agree, we're definitely not going to agree on what the domestic policy should be, 
I don't think that at all. I think we will brutally fight each other over this. Maybe not completely violent, but I'm sure it will, could get violent in some ways, maybe small. But if we don't decouple America from Israel, then we're never going to get to the point where we can work on making America better. And just recognizing reality in like the groups, I don't think that's bad. I don't think that's necessarily bad. I think it's okay to point out that maybe some people, because of their ethnicity, have a, a different allegiance than to America. I don't think that's crazy to point out. You know, they said that, oh, if you point out people's dual citizenship, that's an anti-Semitic trope. Like, the APAC literally says that. Point, like, would it, it's not that crazy. I mean, people make that criticism openly about Ilham Omar. Right? That she has more loyalty to Middle Eastern people. I think that might be true. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. And in a sense, like, that's her people. She should care about them. Why is it bad that, you know, people want to care about white people? If you put it that way, you get called racist, anti-Semitic, and it's ridiculous. It's just not true but that's my thoughts i think the developing political atmosphere and a lot of this is thankfully because of things like x when after after x, uh elon took over rumble is another place odyssey these spaces are very open a lot more free and it's funny when when actually you let free speech at least a lot more free speech develop um, you notice that like a lot more people that were silenced and censored have a lot bigger voice than we actually came to believe, right? Like a lot more people have influence in the political conversation than we thought. And the feelings that people have, that the masses have really come out. So it just goes to show like, they're like, oh wow, the rise of anti-Semitism on X. And it's like, well, they're pretending that maybe, maybe there was anti-Semitism this whole time. Now, there's two things, I think. It's like they're, they're overstating what anti-Semitism is. They're overstating it. So anything critical of Israel, not against the state itself, not the people, is called anti-Semitic. And, or, you know, they thought, like, or it was just so after they released the censorship, there was this like huge rise of anti-Semitism on X. And it's like, okay, well, why is that? You know, you know, if there is anti-Semitism, why is that? And, there, and you don't really get the answer for that. You know, why are people anti-Semitic? It's not, you know, people just aren't anti-Semitic or racist. It's usually something happens to them that with, when they encounter someone from a different group, a different race, that makes them be racist or anti-Semitic. Like something happens. And I'm not saying, I'm not justifying necessarily, I'm just saying that, you know, once X broke free, a lot more voices that are critical of Israel and Jews as a whole have really sprouted out. And that's interesting. That's interesting. So, 
that's my thoughts. Um, I don't really have anything else. Um, thanks, guys, as always, for listening. I really appreciate it. Um, maybe I could go live on YouTube or something. I might consider doing that in the future. Let me know what you guys think. Um, if you guys disagree with what I'm saying or don't like it, or think I'm overstating something or understating something, let me know. You can message me on Twitter um, at the real typo or uh, on my Instagram axeroin typo. Um, let me know what you think. But thanks for listening, and me and Luke will have an episode out very soon. I promise. All right. Thanks. <laughs>